Welcome to the Wellness Plus Podcast, featuring interviews with health and wellness professionals empowering you to take control of your health and happiness. Feel better, look better, and live better today by subscribing right now for new episodes every week. The Wellness Plus Podcast is brought to you by wellnessplus.tv and made possible by the generous donations of Psyche Truth Patreon supporters. Now here's your host, Certified Holistic Health Coach, Karina Rachel. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Karina Rachel, and I'm joined today by Dr. Philip Oob. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So you are a medical doctor with Mm -hmm. a functional medicine approach. Yes. Um, And we were talking for this session to talk about hormones. One of my favorite topics. (laughs) One of these really common things. Can you just kind of touch on those like kind of general topics that we want to cover kind of in the uh, little umbrella of hormones, so to speak? Uh, So we can talk about all the hormones if you want to, but the biggest ones are really the thyroid. Everybody knows about the thyroid. Um, The sexual hormones being female hormones, male hormones. And then my biggest one is the adrenals because we're all American. We're all pushing our adrenals overboard. Mm -hmm. But what people don't normally consider as hormones are hormones as far as insulin. Um, Our our kidneys make hormones, our blood pressure hormones. There's growth hormones in your brain and your body. So there's all kinds of hormones out there, but we'll probably stick to the big ones today. Okay. Yeah. So what what are some of the, I guess, most common problems that you see in this area? I believe everyone has adrenal dysfunction if you're American. So I think number one thing, if you don't know what adrenal dysfunction means or never even heard that term, it's time to go look it up because as most of my patients will find out when they're like, no, I don't have that. And you go, they really make that, that noise too. Nah, I don't have that. <laughs> they, they go online and they start reading about adrenal dysfunction and they'll read the boxes and they'll check them off and be like, oh my gosh, I really do have adrenal dysfunction. I'm a big fan of the term adrenal dysfunction. It previously used to be called adrenal fatigue, and we can get into that if y'all want to, but that's kind of the old terminology. It's falling out of favor. It's now adrenal dysfunction. The whole idea behind adrenal dysfunction is your adrenal glands, which sit on top of the kidneys. That's where they got their name, ad being on top, renal being kidney, so on top of the kidney, adrenal. So these adrenal glands make cortisol, and they also make your your, um, adrenaline molecules, hence adrenaline, adrenal in the hormone. And so these these adrenal glands that make these hormones, they're for stressors. So anytime you stress, anytime you're late for work or taking care of kids or too many things on your plate, you're stimulating more and more cortisol out of your adrenal glands. And ultimately, too much of any hormone wrecks your system. Too much wrecks your system, too little wrecks your system. It's about balance. Interesting. So yes, definitely in the age of everyone's uh, rushing around, everyone's drinking coffee, everyone's bragging about how little sleep they need. Yep. <laughs> um, what are some of the, I guess, uh, common boxes that would check off when we're talking about adrenal dysfunction. So you nailed a couple of them. So first, I kind of like to simplify it to four. Let's see if I can remember the four I usually use. Number one is fatigue. So if you're chronically fatigued or wake up fatigued, that's adrenal dysfunction, at least in some element or part. Number two, and probably the more specific symptom is actually restless sleep. So what I mean by that is frequent tossing and turning, or you just don't, like your head didn't hit the pillow and you woke up when your alarm went off. Like that's restless sleep when you're tossing and turning, or you remember waking up a bunch of times. That's not high quality sleep. Uh, Number three is sugar and salt craving. Uh, and then number four is afternoon fatigue, that that whole like 2 or 3 p.m. where you're like, where's my cup of coffee, my afternoon coffee? Mm-hmm. Those are the four most common symptoms of adrenal dysfunction. 
Interesting. So yeah, that 2 p.m. lag or whatever that's so common. I've heard a lot of people say that it's because we're eating too many carbs at lunch, having too many um, just imbalanced meals or whatever. Is that, do you think, one of the big factors or? Absolutely, because hormones do not exist in a vacuum. Every hormone relies on other hormones, and our hormones are like a spider web. If you pluck one side, the other side's going to vibrate too. So yes, insulin affects adrenal function. Adrenal function affects insulin and, and carb cravings. So absolutely, you eat a bunch of carbs, you release a lot of insulin that changes your cortisol levels, and ultimately you feel fatigued. So you can't directly tie any one symptom to any one hormone. And the perfect example of that was when I was trying to teach myself female hormones. You women are very complicated. And you'll read a book and you see, oh, estrogen. Estrogen does hot flashes and night sweats and uh, skin and hair and all this stuff. And then you go to progesterone and you're like, oh, progesterone does hot flashes and night sweats and skin and hair and all this. And you're like, but estrogen does the same thing. And it's because hormones exist in a network and they communicate together. So many times you can read about a dysfunction and always end up, oh, it's the thyroid. Well, the thyroid does a lot, but so does the estrogen, so does the adrenal. So hormones are all communicating, whether it's insulin, adrenal, female hormones, they're all communicating and they all affect each other. Interesting. So kind of this idea of being able to, um, you know, take something on its own. So for instance, people are like, oh, and I have high estrogen. So now I'm on this like hormone replacement or whatever. Is that kind of just, uh, it sounds like you're maybe only seeing part of the picture Absolutely. by just focusing on one single hormone. You've like strum one of my pet peeves. <laughs> So when I first started getting into functional medicine, hormone balancing, um, one of the common things out there is estrogen dominance. And I know it as estrogen dominance in the functional medicine world. Most people have probably heard it in the conventional medicine world. They've heard it called PCOS. They've heard it called endometriosis. They've heard it called migraines. They've heard it, call, uh, heard it called hair growth on the mouth and chin, um, hirsutism. All those things are basically estrogen dominant sim- symptoms. So whenever conventional medicine sees a problem, they look for a solution to that problem. So you can't, there's no drug out there to reduce estrogen, but progesterone is the seesaw to the estrogen. So if the estrogen is too high, it makes sense that, well, let's just raise the progesterone and that will balance out the estrogen. Well, that doesn't actually work because once again, all hormones are in a network and they're communicating. So when you actually push up progesterone, if the person's on adrenal overdrive, the adrenal glands steal the progesterone and turn it into cortisol and we call that cortisol steel. So now you've wow. taken an estrogen dominant woman who usually women, um, estrogen dominant woman who already has too much cortisol because those two go hand in hand and has too much insulin. So you've taken that woman, given her more progesterone, which turned into more cortisol. And now you've got even more hormone disruption. Typically wow. that hormone replacement works in the short term and some women it really works for, and that's all they needed, but they're usually the ones that are taking care of their adrenals and insulin and all that. So I do do progesterone replacement. I want to make that clear. But for most women with estrogen-dominant symptoms, their problem is not progesterone deficiency. You can check their progesterone levels, and it will be deficient. But the problem is not progesterone deficiency. If you can reduce the estrogen levels, the progesterone levels naturally rise. And there's a lot of infertility in our world right now, and people don't know this. Most people don't. But the progesterone molecule is the one that causes pregnancy or allows you to be pregnant. That's why it's named progest. Pro is for just as pregnancy, progesterone. That's your pregnancy hormone. So if you do not make enough progesterone, you cannot get pregnant. It's not because you have too much estrogen. Estrogen just releases the, causes the ovulation. You ovulated, but you were unable to get pregnant because you don't have enough progesterone. 
So the real question that I haven't answered yet is how do you reduce your estrogen levels? It's actually easier than you would think. Number one is insulin. Insulin, uh, excess insulin causes excess estrogen. So you're eating too much carbs and sugar. That's stimulating your insulin production. The insulin production is messing up your gut, and we've talked about gut dysfunction a lot before. Um, so you're increasing your insulin, and that insulin is throwing off your estrogen, and your estrogen is rising and rising. Estrogen must be detoxified by your liver when it's made, and once the liver detoxifies that estrogen, it dumps it into the bowels. Well, believe it or not, there are bacteria in your bowels that will reactivate the estrogen and put it right back into the circulation. So your ovaries made the estrogen, your liver broke down the estrogen and put it in the bowels, and then your bowels recycled it. So that's called estrogen dominance because you have too much estrogen. Mm. Moreover, many women have what's called a COMT mutation. This is an enzyme. Everybody has it. But many women and almost every woman that I've diagnosed with estrogen dominance has a COMT mutation. This mutation slows down your estrogen detoxification process. So not only can you not break it down very quickly, but if you're eating too much carbs and sugar, you're recycling that estrogen. And so you just build up with more and more and more. The more estrogen you make, the less progesterone you make. Wow. So to fix that, go back to the root cause. Number one, eating too many carbs and sugar. So cut out the carb sugar processed foods. Number two, you've got bacteria recycling the estrogen. So one way to do that is to fix your microbiome. Another way to do that is something called calcium deglucurate. So calcium deglucurate, it's a natural substance. I actually don't remember where it's made from. I only use it in the supplement form. But calcium deglucurate plugs up the bacteria that recycle the estrogen. So it prevents them from recycling the estrogen. Then your estrogen naturally lowers. And then you can support that COMT enzyme with something called DIM. Um, DIM is found in broccoli. I do know where that one comes from. DIM comes from broccoli. I use it as the supplement because you can get way more in the supplement and you'd get tired of eating broccoli if you took that much. Right. So anyway, <laughs> those three components, and you can pretty much reverse estrogen dominance, PCOS, and a lot of the complications that come with it. So to rerun that, carbs and sugar, no carbs and sugar, um, uh, the calcium deglucurate substance, and then um, DIM, D-I-M. Interesting. And how often would you say that... Um, or I guess the question is, you know, for the people that have been doing uh, a replacement therapy or some kind of, you know, trying to balance their estrogen by taking progesterone, how does that affect the body? And does that affect your ability to kind of use those steps to help the body naturally correct the estrogen level? Uh, so no, it doesn't affect it because as long as you're using it, you're somewhat balancing out the estrogen, but it's not helping the root cause. So it may reduce the symptoms. It may reduce your PMS. It may reduce your bleeding. It may help in some form or fashion, but ultimately you're dependent on that progesterone to make it happen. Now, if you're really on adrenal overdrive and you're con you continue to take that progesterone, then eventually you will make more and more cortisol and you will end up with more and more problems or uh, downstream sequelae. You can't just add a hormone to the body and expect the other hormones not to be affected. Eventually, they will be affected. Wow. Very interesting. So um, I guess from there, what does it take us back to adrenals, um, you know, outside of somebody with the estrogen dominance? What are the other kind of factors in that adrenal uh, dysfunction? So you can pretty much tie any symptom to adrenal dysfunction. And it's both kind of a, it's catch 22 because when you're sick and inflamed, then your adrenals are on overdrive trying to power the system. So you get adrenal dysfunction. Or if you're just a workaholic working, 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 then you're overpowering those adrenal glands and then you end up with consequences. So it's both a chicken and an egg, so to speak. And it's hard to get out of that 
that situation because you can't just fix the adrenal glands and expect the other stuff to get better because those consequences that you created are already consequences that those must be dealt with as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So many times by the time we have people coming to see us, we're saying, you have adrenal problems, but that's not all. We have to fix all of these problems. To use Dr. Bredesen's metaphors, if you have 36 leaks in your roof, you can't just fix one. You're still going to get wet. Right. We'd like to briefly interrupt this interview to remind you that this podcast was made possible by listeners just like you. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash psychetruth, where you can watch the video version of this episode and all our podcast episodes. Plus, you'll gain access to over 500 videos of exclusive content, including premium courses and behind-the-scenes peaks. Help us keep this information free by visiting patreon.com slash psychetruth. That's patreon.com slash P-S-Y-C-H-E-T-R-U-T-H. Very interesting. So then, um, so we had adrenals. We also talked about thyroid. Is it true that the adrenals and thyroid are kind of, um, I guess... They they affect each other, but what's the relationship between them? So they lean closely together. The, the usual cascade of hormone imbalance, this is just a suggestion. It's not actual real life. But what we find is, is common is in women, the adrenal glands fail first, then the thyroid fails, then the female hormones fail. So by the time you have estrogen dominance, you also have thyroid imbalance, and you've already had adrenal dysfunction for even longer. Wow. For men, it's a little different. It's always adrenals first. So the adrenals fall first then the testosterone falls, then the thyroid falls. So typically by the time a male is being diagnosed with thyroid dysfunction, they've had testosterone issues and adrenal issues for even longer. Wow. And then that, again, comes back to trying to get the adrenals uh, functioning better by reducing our insulin, trying Mm to... do, is it necessary to completely cut carbs and sugar or you just want to significantly cut carbs yeah, and sugar? Yeah, good question. No, you don't have to cut it completely. But if you look at the typical American diet, we're eating anywhere from 60 to 80% carbs. So at least dropping the carbs down to 40 30% is, is a reasonable start. And um, as far as the adrenals, although diet and things matter to it, the biggest trigger is our stressors that we do every day. We Americans typically wake up and we reach over for the smartphone and we're checking our social media, we're checking our bank, we're, we're already on. None of us took time to, I shouldn't say none of us, there are plenty of people that have a good morning routine, but we, we should be waking up, allowing ourselves to wake up, taking a casual breakfast, whatnot. But we typically, we wake up, we go 90 miles an hour and we don't stop until we hit the pillow and we are working, working, working right up until we hit that pillow and we expect to have blissful, perfect sleep, even though we've done nothing to prepare for sleep. One of the things that um, helps me realize how bad my adrenals can be, because I'm a, a culprit of the same issue, is when I have my kids. So I'm divorced. I have my kids 50% of the time. When I have my kids, by 8.30, I am ready to go to sleep. And the reason why is because the house has gotten quieter. I've turned the lights off. I'm getting the kids prepared for bed. But at the same time, I've prepared my own adrenals for bed. So many times, I'm out by 8.30, 9 o'clock with the kids when I have them. Mm-hmm. When I don't have the kids, all the lights are on, the music on, the TV's on, the computer's on, and it'll be 11 o'clock and I won't be sleepy. And it's because the adrenals are on overdrive. Interesting. So there's a lot that, um, you know, just our environment, so to speak, <laughs> uh, is, is keeping us awake and keeping us feeling really wired. Absolutely. 
So we use a lot of supplements in, in my realm to help people deal with their adrenal dysfunctions. And it does help, but I never give someone the supplement and be like, oh, keep doing what you're doing. Just take these pills. You'll be fine. No. These pills will help balance your adrenal system, but they are not the end-all be-all. If you keep cooking them, they are not going to last. So yes, they will help you repair faster, but if you're not doing anything, they're just going to keep struggling. So mainly what we're trying to convince people of, because trying to tell people to stop working just doesn't happen. We're American. So usually what we're trying to help people deal with is the perception of stress much more than the Mm. actual stressor itself. A good way to think about that is if you're in traffic, and if you live in Austin, you've got plenty of traffic, um, but if you're in traffic, there's kind of two ways to deal with someone when they pull out in front of your car. They pull out, everyone's fine, they pull out in front of you, you get raging mad, screaming, cussing, birds in the air, all that stuff. That's an adrenal stressor. You just created an adrenal stressor. Mm -hmm. Now, let's take that same situation and change the perception of the stressor. Someone pulls out in front of you, you're like, oh, well, they're clearly in more of a rush than I am. No big deal. I'm not harmed. No one got hit. We're cool. Let's keep going. Two totally different perceptions of the exact same event. One leads to adrenal destruction. The other leads to adrenal repair and recovery. So you can go throughout your life as if the, the building is on fire or you can say, okay, yes, there are fires, but we're putting them out. We're moving forward logically. So the perception of the stressor matters more than the stressor itself. Interesting. And then are there any kind of uh, other recommendations that you provide to patients for reducing their stress? I know you talked about uh, having somewhat of a healthy morning ritual Mm -hmm. where you are kind of moving out of your slumber more slowly, having a more relaxed breakfast rather than out the door, rushing, rushing, rushing. Um, And then at night helping your body to get ready for sleep by things like turning off the lights or off the TV. Um, I know for myself, (laughs) if I am sitting in front of the TV, I will stay up way later Mm -hmm. than if I have the TV off. I don't know what it is about about it, but it definitely keeps you awake. It keeps you wired. So things like turning off, you know, televisions and you know, to whatever extent you can, your computers, your Mm -hmm. blue light emitting devices or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there any other things people can do on a daily basis, so to speak, to keep the adrenals from constantly firing all the time? Yeah, rituals are the big thing and timing is the big thing. So our adrenals are set to fire with the sun rising and the sun going down. So if your timing, so shift workers have it the worst. A shift worker will never sleep on time because anytime you're shifting the time you're sleeping and the time you're awakening, it totally screws up the adrenal glands. And if you ever look at one of those people, their cortisol levels are just flat. They're either too high, flat, too low, flat, or even if they're normal, it's never supposed to be flat. Your cortisol is supposed to be high in the morning, low in the evenings, and that's what tells you to be awake. That's what tells you to go to sleep. So if you really think about what you should be doing to take care of your adrenals, think about the day before electricity. The sun rose, that woke you up. The sun started going down. You couldn't hunt, you couldn't gather, you couldn't do anything. So you might as well go to your cave and chill out. There was no TV, there was no phones, there was no lights. So not that we have to be like cavemen at all times, but if you're ever struggling with something, if you're struggling to have good sleep, if you're struggling to be awake when you are actually awake, then it's time to go back to our roots and say, what am I doing wrong? What can I do better? People think that um, sleep should just happen whenever you lay down, but they forget that the actual thing that onsets sleep is melatonin. Melatonin does not come from a bottle. Yes, you can take melatonin. Yes, it may help with sleep, but melatonin comes from the absence of light. There's no presence of darkness. You can't stimulate darkness. The absence of light is what allows melatonin to be produced by the brain. So if there's 
any light at all, you've disrupted your melatonin production and you will not go to sleep. And that presence of darkness or absence of light starts an hour or more before bedtime. So you can't have the light screaming on, and even if you're doing blue emitters or whatever, or blue blockers, um, you can't just expect to go 90 miles an hour and then hit the pillow and go to sleep. The right. lights need to be dimming with the sun and they need to be going as many of them out as possible. And nowadays with TV quality and things, there's a lot of light coming from the TV yeah. and that's what prevents you from going to sleep. Not to mention TV is very activating to the brain. So yes, it, disrupting sleep only makes the adrenal problem that much worse. Interesting. So how do the adrenals affect the thyroid then? So we've talked about that already. Men go from adrenals to uh, testosterone to thyroid. Women go adrenals to thyroid to female hormones. Um, and so the reason why all hormones are connected, like the spider web we talked about, so the main way the adrenals affect the thyroid is when the adrenals are overfiring, when your body's producing too much cortisol, that is a stressed state. The thyroid is the gas pedal for the human body. So the more thyroid around, the harder you're pushing on the gas pedal. Well, when the body's in a stressed state, guess what? It's saying, hey, this is not good. We're either famine or something's attacking us, something ain't right, don't push the gas pedal, don't burn our resources, hold on to our resources. Mm. So when the adrenals are overfiring or underfiring, remember, too much of a hormone, too bad, too low of a hormone can cause the same effects. So when the adrenal glands are dysfunctional, that's why I prefer that term, when the adrenal glands are dysfunctional, it's affecting the thyroid in a couple ways. Number one, it suppresses the production of thyroid hormone. And the way it does that is it goes, the cortisol goes to the brain and says we're under stress. The brain stops asking for thyroid. So this is where conventional medicine doctors kind of get stuck. You can get a perfectly normal TSH back from your lab and then your doctor will say, oh, you're perfectly fine. Your thyroid's fine. Look at your number. And you're like, wow, but I feel all the symptoms of low thyroid. Well, your brain has the choice to not ask for thyroid. So your TSH is the brain asking for more thyroid. If your brain brain is sick and your brain is stressed, it will not be asking for more thyroid. This is actually a conventional medical term that we know about. We call it sick euthyroid, EU thyroid. This is what happens in the ICU when someone's really sick, their thyroid levels are really suppressed, but their TSH is perfectly normal. That's because the brain is so sick, it's saying, don't press the gas pedal no matter what you do, we can't handle anything. Mm. So your TSH is a terrible marker of actual thyroid production. So the adrenals suppress the TSH production. When the TSH is reduced, your thyroid doesn't have any demand for thyroid hormone, so it just stops producing it. Not only that, but it goes a step further. When the, the little bit of thyroid hormone that is being produced by the thyroid, the adrenal glands and inflammation cause the T4 to be broken down into reverse T3. So just to run that, that cascade down again, the brain releases TSH, the TSH goes to the thyroid, the thyroid primarily releases T4. Once the T4 is released, it circulates all around the body and it's converted to either T3 or reverse T3. If the body is healthy, happy, plenty of nutrients, everything's all good, the body converts T4 into T3. And by the body, I mean the tissues, the, the liver, the lungs, the kidneys, the brain, everything can convert T4 to T3. Yeah. It's the organs' ways of communicating with each other. If the liver's throwing a party and it's like, hey, everything's good, y'all join up at the party, I'm gonna make some T3. But if the kidneys are under attack for whatever reason, maybe you have an autoimmune problem attacking the kidneys, the kidneys are going to make reverse T3 instead. So the liver's partying, but the kidney's saying, mm, you got to shut the party down because I can't handle it. So it's the way, it's the tissue's way of communicating back to the brain and to the rest of the body, whether it's feast or famine. So oh. if it's under famine, it makes reverse T3 and reverse T3 is known as the thyroid blocker. 
So you can have the world's most perfect thyroid levels all around the block, but if you have elevated reverse T3, you now have all the symptoms of low thyroid because the reverse mm -hmm. T3 sits on the thyroid receptor and prevents the thyroid hormone from actually triggering the receptor. And once again, if any one organ is struggling, it will make excessive reverse T3 in order to shut down the rest of the body. The primary organ that makes reverse T3 is the liver, although I want to make sure everyone knows that any organ can technically make reverse T3. Wow. That was a long answer. No, and, <laughs> and I'm interested to know, you know, so when they do the kind of, um, you know, thyroid screening in a conventional setting and they come back and they're usually looking at like T4, TSH, um, T3, uh, are they really getting a full picture of all of that? Because it sounds much more complex than just, oh, your TSH is high or, oh, this is low. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, unfortunately, the thyroid levels are fairly complicated. But once you really understand the biochemistry behind it and what, what each hormone is telling you, they make perfect sense. So to run the test, all you need to do a complete hormone panel, in my mind, is four hormones. And you can take this to the bank. This is the only ones I run on all my patients. And I run it every time I check their thyroid. So it's TSH. It's free T4, not thyroxine, not total T4, not total T4 uptake, free T4. So to start over, TSH, free T4, free T3, and reverse T3. That's the only four hormones you need in order to get a good picture. If the TSH is normal, that's just telling you the brain's not asking for more thyroid. If the T4 is normal, that tells you that the thyroid is making enough T4. If the T3, the active T3, is too low, that's telling you the body's not activating the T4. If the reverse T3 is too high, that tells you that some organ is in trouble and it's blocking the thyroid. So my typical reference ranges, um, at least in America, it's different out of the country. But TSH, I want between 1 and 2. Free T4, I want over 1.1. Free T3, I want over 3.2. And reverse T3, I want under 14. And based on which one is abnormal is how I treat the patient. Majority of the times when I'm seeing someone, they're autoimmune, they're inflamed, the reverse T3 is high, and I'm not touching their thyroid hormone, even though they could use it. I don't treat with thyroid hormone because in the beginning usually, because by repairing the body, the thyroid repairs itself, mm -hmm. and then they don't need thyroid hormone the rest of their life. Interesting. And then if you start giving the body something and it stops producing it on its own, that's... That doesn't happen with the thyroid. Oh. So many people that when they start taking thyroid hormone, they're told that they're going to have to take it the rest of their life. That's partially true, especially if you don't treat the root cause. If you don't ever fix the root cause, yeah, you're going to take that medicine the rest of your life because the root cause is still there. So if it's adrenal dysfunction, you fix the adrenal dysfunction, boom, you're fixed. But usually if you have low thyroid, you've you've got a autoimmune condition. The two reasons to have low thyroid production from the actual thyroid gland. So if your T4 is low, i.e. if you're taking Synthroid, which is T4 only, if you're taking Synthroid only or have low T4 and high TSH, is because your thyroid can't make hormone. The two main reasons to not make thyroid hormone is one, your thyroid has been destroyed by your immune system. Your immune system is really good at what it does. So if you have an autoimmune condition known as Hashimoto's where you have anti-TPO antibodies or anti-TG thyroglobulin antibodies, you are destroying your thyroid. If you destroy your thyroid, it can't make any hormone and now you must take thyroid replacement the rest of your life. In general, it doesn't take that much thyroid to actually have a fully functioning thyroid. So as long as you have some thyroid left, 
left, you can eventually come off of the thyroid hormone. So number one reason to have low thyroid, so anyone on thyroid replacement, they almost always have an autoimmune condition whether they know it or not. Most of the time they don't know because their doctor never tested. So that would be the fifth lab that I would run on all my patients, fifth and sixth is the anti-TPO and anti-TG labs. Um, and if those are positive, you have the autoimmune condition and that needs to be reversed. And um, so the two reasons, I keep forgetting to answer the question, the two reasons to have low thyroid, one, you have an autoimmune condition. Number two, you have toxicity. So this is not so crazy functional medicine doctor to have toxicity that suppresses the thyroid gland. It's well known even in conventional medicine, I was taught in a medical school, that there are certain chemicals and compounds that cause the thyroid to be suppressed. In fact, that's one of the ways we came up with the drugs for Graves' disease. So Graves' disease is one of the autoimmune conditions that causes high thyroid. The main only reason to have high thyroid is because of an autoimmune condition called Graves' disease. And so when you have Graves' disease, you're producing too much thyroid hormone. So you're given these drugs that block the thyroid from producing those. Well, how did we discover that drug? Well, we found out it was a chemical toxicity and it was causing low thyroid in people. So then we use it in high thyroid people. Wow. Jet fuel is a known toxin to decrease people's thyroid. Um, that and pesticides. So if you live in a farm, if you live near an airport, or if you live somewhere crop dusting, you've definitely, and you have low thyroid, you can pretty much blame it on the pesticides and or the jet fuel. Interesting. And you probably have an autoimmune component as well. Just Can you, in. Um, so in the previous podcast, uh, you explained autoimmunity. Um, can you just kind of go over that again here? Because that was fascinating. The short version, right? <laughs> Whichever. <laughs> okay. So if you have an autoimmune condition, and I don't care which autoimmune condition it is, you have leaky gut. And so the idea behind leaky gut, if you've never heard of it, you must Google it and start researching it. Because if you have an autoimmune condition, the only thing you basically need to fix is leaky gut. If you can fix your leaky gut, your autoimmune condition will go away. Your immune system never wanted to attack itself. So why is it attacking itself? It's attacking itself because it's confused. The reason it's confused is because something is going on in the bowels where the, prime, where the majority of our immune system lives. And when it's living down there, if there's inflammation, if there's something leaking through the cracks, then you're going to have an autoimmune trigger towards whatever it is you're reacting to. Mm -hmm. So to go backwards a little bit, all autoimmunity is triggered by leaky gut. So what is leaky gut? If you think of your skin as a barrier, if you jump in a, jump in a swimming pool, to use the same analogy, if you jump in a swimming pool, you do not become a swimming pool because <laughs> your skin prevents the swimming pool from entering you and it prevents you from entering the swimming pool. So you are separate from the swimming pool. Same thing as if you rub a paperclip over your skin, the paperclip does not enter you. You do not have an inflammatory reaction to that paperclip unless you disrupt your barrier. So if you go jabbing the paperclip into your skin, you will have an immune response against said paperclip. The paperclip did nothing wrong except break the barrier. So if you think of your gut as the exact same thing, except it's on the inside, most people don't realize that when you eat food, food does not enter your body, it passes through your body. And you have a barrier on the inside, your intestines are a barrier, and that food must pass through you and not enter you. But if you have any sort of leakiness to your barrier, any kind of disruption to that barrier, then you're gonna have problems with that food, bacteria, fungus, whatever it is that's crossing through. And each one of those pieces have a protein on the outside, and that's how your body is identifying it as foreign. It's saying, hey, that apple is foreign, it's not supposed to be inside me. It looks like this, so I'm going to go attack it. And it just so happens that there are those 3D structures that are in food, bacteria, fungus, also have the same exact molecular mimicry to our own tissues. And we're getting closer in science. There's actually proof now 
that you can take these thyroid antibodies and mix them with spinach and mix them with plastics, and you can see what's actually what these antibodies are actually actually attacking. And once you can figure out what that antibody is attacking in that human being, if you remove that one trigger, even if they have leaky gut, if you're able to remove that one trigger, the autoimmunity goes away wow. because the immune system isn't identifying the thyroid as foreign. Your immune system is studied. Every cell that's created by your human body, every immune cell that's created is rigorously tested for self. If it ever identifies self, it's killed right on the spot. It's done. It never makes it into circulation. It's not too different from our military. Um, if you, they, The military goes through all kinds of testing and things to look at if, if a military person attacks a civilian, probably not going to make it out into the army. So same thing for your immune system. Your immune system never wanted to attack self. It's confused. It's attacking something else and yourself as collateral damage. Was a little longer than I intended. But. No, that's good. And I think it's it's important to understand that, um, you know, the confusion of the immune system, so to speak, is, um, you know, is all comes back down to those like basic molecular shapes or whatever. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I think the what you had said in the previous one that kind of stuck with me is. Um, you know, if you, uh, the body's like identifying something as the bad guy, and then mm-hmm. it kind of like sends out the all points bulletin to the mm-hmm. rest of the body. Hey, look out for this guy. He's got this molecular structure. Mm-hmm. And then it just so happens that a lot of times that bad molecular structure, like you said, is maybe similar to the brain or the liver or the thyroid or whatever. And so the body is then attacking itself like a, um, you know, case of mistaken identity almost. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then in terms of being able to correct that, like you said, either you take out the thing that is, uh, that the body's actually trying to attack, like the gluten or the dairy Mm -hmm. or the, um, whatever chemical it might be, um, or to just fix the barrier Mm -hmm. so that, you know, the things that are meant to pass through, just pass through the things that need to be taken out or removed and the things that your body wants to keep and retain, it can absorb and everything else is, you know, just gotten rid of. Um, well said. You know, getting back to that idea of uh, the mimicry, is that kind of when you hear um, the term like oestrogen, oestrogenic things that... Uh, Xenoestrogenic? Okay. Yeah. So or, is, um, if that's what you're referring to, so fake estrogens and like plastics and chemicals? Yeah. So okay. when there's Endocrine something disruptors. that we're taking in that the body mistakes for estrogen, I okay. guess. And so that's similar except um, when the immune system identifies something as foreign, it always identifies a protein. Like you cannot be allergic to a fat. You cannot be allergic to a carb. No one gets – no one is allergic to sugar, unfortunately. I wish I were kind of allergic <laughs> to sugar. But um, you can't be allergic to sugars and you can't be allergic to fats. You can only be allergic to proteins and that's because your immune system only identifies proteins on the outside of things. That statement may not be 100 percent true. But as far as I know, that's the general um, idea. So when you're talking about xenoestrogens and mistaken identity, same idea but different – different compound. So the estrogens that our body makes are actually fat soluble. They're, they're cholesterol molecules. Estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, cortisol are, are all cholesterol molecules. And so they're fatty molecules. So when you your body struggles the most with getting rid of fatty um, ag- 
agents like plastics and, um, oh, nothing's coming to mind, glyphosate, Roundup, all that stuff. And so the reason why it struggles to get rid of it is because fat likes to stick to fat, water likes to stick to water. So it's really easy to eliminate water-soluble toxins because you can just pee them out, you can sweat them out, you can drool them out. They're pretty easy to get out of the body. Fat-soluble ones like to stick to our own fatty cells, our fatty tissue, our brain. Our brain is 60% fat, our cell membranes. Everything that's fatty, those things like to stick to. So in order for the liver to get rid of it, it has to make it water-soluble. And that's through the detoxification process to make it water-soluble. Or if it's fat-soluble, it's going to keep it fat-soluble and dump it in the bile, and that's how you ultimately can get rid of it. But the xenoestrogens, the fake estrogens in our body, apparently also called oestrogens, um, these are – we don't know why so many chemicals and toxins act like estrogens, why they don't act like testosterone and everyone's bulky and happy and, and sexual. I don't know, but most of them act like estrogens. And so um, – these estrogens start affecting our, our brain because the brain doesn't know what is a real estrogen and what is a fake estrogen. It's just got a receptor for estrogen. So anything that tickles it, it says there's estrogen. Yeah. And so that's one of the main causes for low testosterone, I believe, is the too many fake estrogens in our body. And you may not know this, that men were born women and then they converted to men in utero. And so our brain is not designed to detect testosterone in the bloodstream. It's designed to detect estrogen in the bloodstream. Testosterone is naturally converted to estrogen. So if the estrogen levels are high, the brain thinks the testosterone level is high, so it stops asking for it. Oh. So as men get more and more toxic, their estrogen levels build up, so they stop asking for testosterone, and then the testosterone levels slowly decline. That's why there's it's not like a menopause. That's a common term now, menopause. There's no such thing as menopause. It's, it's a common cool thing to get your testosterone checked, but if your testosterone is low, it didn't happen overnight. It's yeah. been slowly decreasing. And the two reasons, I believe, the two main reasons to have I'll, I'll throw in a third. Uh, number one is the toxin issue. Number two is adrenal stress. It makes sense that if we're paleolithic men and we're all in a cave, the one that's the most stressed should not be sexually reproducing. We don't want his genes to keep going. So someone that's under adrenal stress for their whole life, their testosterone is going to be lower because ultimately our DNA says if you're stressed, you don't want to be reproducing. And then number three is inflammation. Wow. Inflammation and low testosterone go hand in hand. So that's, that's the easy one. Interesting. It's interesting in that little analogy, too, that a lot of times what are the unfavorable symptoms for us um, is actually happening because of the body's own survival mechanism. <laughs> yeah. Like in that case that you have like low, you know, sex drive or whatever, because actually your body's trying to protect you mm -hmm. in knowing that if you're super stressed and something's going crazy and there's a bear chasing you, now is not the time for <laughs> you to be sexually active. Right. You know, Find same, a tree. Climb it fast. Same thing for women and infertility. You know, like uh, when the body is perceiving that this person's under a lot of stress, there's probably, you know, because your body doesn't know if there's actually a bear or if there's just a deadline mm -hmm. <laughs> or just a, uh, a meeting that you're racing to or whatever. So it's perceiving that stress as a reason for you to not get pregnant. This mm -hmm. is actually going to be healthier for you to be infertile. Um, and I think that's very, uh, it's kind of hard to 
um, to understand that in a lot of ways, even the whole reason that the body stores fat in the first place, mm -hmm. you know, we have a very negative perception right. of holding on to excess fat, <laughs> right. but your body is doing it to try and save Protect your you. life. Yeah. So it's like, woohoo, we're doing good. We're saving up this <laughs> fat. We got so many things saved up for you in case there's a famine. And then meanwhile, we're sitting there going like, I hate you body. Why are you doing yep. this? So there's like this great disconnect between, yep. um, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons why functional medicine is so powerful because it kind of helps you get into that uh, mind space to understand why the body's doing what it's doing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those unpleasant symptoms are actually there because your body's trying to do something for your survival or whatever. And mm -hmm. that can feel very, it can feel very confusing, I think. It's systems-based biology. So if you've got a problem, we're going to look at all the systems and why those systems are affected. It's another issue with our fragmented medical society. So if you go to um, a GP with fatigue, he might think one thing. If you go to your GYN with fatigue, they're going to think female hormones. If you go to a neurologist with fatigue, well, they're going to think um, brain inflammation. So with our fragmented medical society, depending on who you see is what they're going to treat, you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It doesn't matter if it's a screw. It's going to just hammer it. So if, you're, if your only tools are neurology tools, your only tools are OBGYN tools, you're going to stick with those tools instead of looking at the whole system. Every doctor should be a general practitioner with a special set of tools to be a neurologist or a GYN, but that's not what's happened. What's happened in our society is we have GPs, general practitioners, and they send a specialist, and those specialists don't really look into a lot of other fields because they don't need to, and it's really harming people. Interesting. And we talked about that in the previous podcast mm -hmm. as well, kind of that whole kind of phenomenon of, uh, you know, trying to isolate things and remove mm -hmm. all the confounding factors. And then, yeah. unfortunately, that's just not realistic. <laughs> it's not life. Because no one is only eating turmeric or only eating mm -hmm. this thing or whatever, you know. We're not rats in there. a cage. Yeah, we're not rats in a cage. Everything um, has to work together. Um, so we talked a lot about adrenals a lot about thyroid. Is there anything else about thyroid that you want to mention? Um, I could probably talk for hours on thyroid, <laughs> but I think the main thing is that if you're taking thyroid hormone, it's it's time to investigate the root cause of the thyroid hormone, why you need it. Do you have an autoimmune condition? Do you have a toxin issue? And so once you get to the root cause, then maybe you can get off of it. Frequently, by the time people end up on thyroid replacement, they've destroyed a significant amount of their thyroid. Mm. So generally, when patients come to see me, I tell them, I want your expectation to be that you will take this the rest of your life. And if you get off it, great. That's just a win in our court, but you may have to. Interesting. And then you had mentioned that high TSH um, tends to be autoimmune. Can you speak on that a little bit more? So there's not really any reason for the thyroid to ever underproduce. The thyroid is a very unique gland. Every gland in the human body that makes hormones makes hormones on demand except the thyroid. So the thyroid is the only one that makes this glob of thyroid hormone called thyroglobulin. And this thyroglobulin is excessive amounts of thyroid hormone. And when the body asks for more thyroid, when the brain, I should say, asks for more thyroid, it sends a message from the brain down to the thyroid and thyroid goes, okay, the body wants more thyroid. So it just goes tink, knocks a piece off and sends it into circulation. There's still a ton of thyroid hormone in there ready to go at any moment. That's the only reason why we can take a, a pig's thyroid gland, porcine thyroid, and give it to a human being and have 
uh, th that as a thyroid replacement. There's no other gland in the human body that you can grind up, dry, and give to a human and get that, that hormone replacement. We used to believe that were possible. So if you look back in history, you'll see ground up testicles and ovaries and all kinds of stuff injected into people in order to boost their hormones and stuff. But none of it actually works, only the thyroid. So the thyroid always has plenty of thyroid hormone at its disposal. So if the brain's TS, if the brain is releasing excess TSH, if the level is over two, the brain is asking for a lot more thyroid. Why is the thyroid not delivering? There's plenty in storage. It's kind of like having a lot in your savings account and your, your checking accounts being overdrafted. You're like, there's plenty in the savings account. Just take it out. So if the thyroid is underproducing hormone, there's a reason. And mm. it's usually toxins or autoimmunity. Interesting. And I think that maybe, you know, the next question from here is, um, you know, how do you support the body in, in bringing its own hormones back into balance? Um, you talked a lot about, you know, with the adrenals, um, the sugar and the carbohydrates mm -hmm. and um, kind of how insulin and uh, the adrenals are so closely linked. Um, are there other recommendations that you would give for people that are just wanting to um, help support their body in, in this kind of balancing act? Yes and no. So in, uh, as a functional medicine doctor, my answer is always you have to fix the gut. Nothing's going to work unless you fix the gut. And to go on to that a little um, deeper is if you've got a tree that's got a sick branch or leaves falling off and you're not sure why, are you going to look at the branch and be like, oh, something's wrong with that branch? Or are you going to go, wow, am I not watering the tree? Does it not have enough nutrients? Does it not have enough space to grow? For some reason, when we look at a plant, we understand that. But when we look at our own human body and our hair's falling out and our, our eyebrows aren't growing or we're gaining weight, we feel bad. The first thing we think of is not our root system. Our gut is our roots into our nutrients. If mm. your roots are terrible, if you take a shovel and dig all around a plant, it's dead. It is dead. But for some reason, we think we can pack in processed foods and, and destroy our microbiome and destroy our gut, yet everything should still work fine. I'm giving it the macronutrients. Why shouldn't it? So the first step in hormone balance is actually fixing your bowels. If you cannot absorb your nutrients, nothing's going to work right. There's tons of supplements that you'll read about on the thyroid internet about iodine and, and selenium and all these things for the thyroid. But ultimately, you can take all those nutrients to the cows come home and it's not going to do anything because if you can't fix the underlying cause for your thyroid disruption, then it's not going to do a darn thing. So yes, you can take selenium. Yes, you can do a little bit of iodine. But most people don't know about iodine is that iodine in the beginning activates the thyroid, but over prolonged use, anywhere from three to six or more months, it actually suppresses the thyroid. So so if you ever use iodine, you typically tell people to do it short term. Um, I realize that causes a lot of conflict. A lot of people are big believers in iodine. That's just my personal opinion. There's not enough science on iodine yet. Um, but as far as repairing the adrenals, there's a lot more to do with the adrenal glands. Um, but you must use your personal uh, perception of the stressors more than anything. My favorite herb for the adrenals is called ashwagandha. I use 500 milligrams twice a day. I like saying ashwagandha because it's an awesome herb. Um, the other ones you can use are licorice. You only use licorice in the morning. Licorice prevents the breakdown of cortisol to cortisone. Um, rhodiola, ulithero. Um, there's a combo supplement that I use called Adrenal, A-D-R-E-N hyphen A-L-L. -L. It's made by Orthomolecular. 
take two capsules of that in the morning, and then Adrena Vive, same people, orthomolecular, you take that in the evening. So you've got kind of your uppers, you've got your downers, and then it helps start rebalancing your thyroid hormones. So that's some of the supplements you can take. Now, we don't, we call those supplements adaptogens that help the adrenal glands. And something fascinating that Dr. Perlmutter pointed out in his book, I think it was in Brain Maker, his book, and that's a fascinating book. Everyone needs to read Grain, Brain, and Brain Maker. But in Brain Maker, he actually pointed out some of the early research. I think it was in ashwagandha that when someone took ashwagandha, we've known for a long time that ashwagandha helps balance people people's adrenal glands. So what we didn't know is how does it affect someone's adrenal glands? It turns out that someone somewhere really smarter than me was able to prove that by swallowing ashwagandha, it actually fed a specific microbe, a specific bacteria, which made compounds that actually balanced our adrenal gland. So the ashwagandha didn't do anything for the adrenal gland. It was actually the ashwagandha fed a bacteria which balanced our adrenal gland. So if that doesn't give you the idea that your microbiome is in control of your body, not sure what will. So I don't doubt that over time, we will slowly find out that it's not about absorbing curcumin. It's about curcumin stimulating this microbe, which stimulates this and that. So we just don't know how much of it is actually changing our microbiome, which is then affecting us instead of the actual compound itself. Interesting. Got off on a little tangent there. No, and that's, and, but that's so important too. And I think that, um, I think by now most people are familiar with like we have good bacteria and bad mm-hmm. bacteria in the gut and that our processed foods and alcohol and sugar kind mm-hmm. of uh, contribute to that overgrowth of those harmful bacteria. Um, but I think really having an appreciation for not only how important all of those good bacteria are, but all of the problems that can result when those good bacteria aren't functioning. Um, I've used the analogy before of like, if you've got, you know, uh, two different armies and this army is, you know, way bigger than the other and the army that's there to try and defend you is dwindling, (laughs) you can understand how that would create problems. Um, That's of course a a big oversimplification, but um, but I think for people to really be able to just appreciate the role of the microbiome. So yeah, your bacteria, your yeast, all of these different things that we really don't think about, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that people, um, you know, we don't get necessarily tested for those types of things. Nope. You know, but we you can. Don't... There is testing for it nowadays, and many people don't know that. There's organic acids testing. There's GI effects. There's uh, comprehensive CDSA. I forget what that stands for. But there's ways to test what's actually going on in your microbiome. Wow. We've got a long ways to go. We, I mean, we have barely scratched the surface, but at least we've got enough data to show overgrowth and what we what we need to do about those overgrowths. Right. And you did a, a really wonderful job kind of explaining the um, steps to healing the gut in that previous podcast episode. So um, people can always refer to that mm-hmm. previous discussion on functional medicine. Because, um, yeah, you really did a great job of kind of discussing how you can heal the gut and help to repair all of those different, not only the barrier, but restoring mm-hmm. the microbiome to mm-hmm. the state that it really needs to be in. Um You know, in terms of uh, hormone issues, you know, a lot of people that are just, um, you know, that kind of associate that mood is the main thing that's going to 
be affected by your hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, is that true or is that maybe just like a piece of the picture? It's definitely a piece of the picture. And so mood is – so both females and men, it's easier to pick on the women because they have a cycle every month, right? But if you think of grumpy old men, men are grumpy and old because their testosterone is low. So you can have the both same symptoms at low hormone and high hormone. Everyone associates testosterone with rage. But testosterone is actually a very calming, soothing, chilling hormone. That's why men typically allow things to roll off their back, whereas women can't do that as easily. So testosterone is a chilling hormone. Now, testosterone at excess definitely makes Makes you rage. Testosterone at deficiency makes you irritable and grumpy. So the hormone balance is the most important part. Wow. Now, it, the other issue that goes along with women per se is that the hormone shift matters more than the hormone level itself. So for instance, when you're going through your menstrual cycle every month, your estrogen rises, your estrogen falls. The higher something goes, the lower it must fall. That shift is actually what creates the mood disruption. So if you're having estrogen dominance, which we talked about earlier in the podcast, the higher that estrogen goes and the further it falls is what causes the PMS symptoms. The higher the estrogen goes, the the, the more you bleed, the more cramping you have. So the the way to balance the mood isn't anything wrong with the mood. It's to prevent the estrogen from going high enough. And also when the estrogen goes that high, you also need the progesterone to balance it down. And that's what keeps the mood balanced. So for women, it's a little more complicated. For men, if the testosterone is low, you just fix the testosterone. Now, I'm not a big fan of testosterone replacement for life. I'm a big fan of use it temporarily, fix the underlying problem, take the man off of testosterone replacement. Mm-hmm. So mood's a big deal. And we have loved ones and children and spouses, and they deserve to have the, the best version of us. Right. And it's not, it, if it's the hormone's fault, then get to the root cause of the hormone. Don't just live with someone that's grumpy and irritable and ignoring the problem. Right. Can we talk about um, some of the Uh, I guess, exogenous endocrine disruptors. So the things in our foods or... Cosmetics. Cosmetics. Oh, the cosmetics is such a big one. And it's really easy for me to turn a blind eye to because I don't use any cosmetics. But that is a big deal. Women are putting tons of makeup on. I don't mean tons of makeup like it's a bad thing. I mean like tons of products on their skin every day. Women like to smell good, all those things. And we are putting numerous amounts of toxins, endocrine disruptors, and all kinds of things on our body. I, we, I just finished telling you that the skin is an excellent barrier. The skin is an excellent barrier against hydrophilic, so water-soluble things. The toxins that we struggle to get rid of, once again, are fat-soluble. So all these lotions and creams and cosmetics, they're designed to stay on your body so that they don't fall off and they last a long time. So in order to do that, they have to be fat-soluble. Well, anything that's fat-soluble ends up dissolving into your skin really easily. And so all these chemicals and cosmetics that women are putting on their skin are disrupting their hormones and causing some of the very problems they're suffering from. Mm -hmm. Their infertility rates in our country are rising and they're quite scary. And it's young, healthy people that are now infertile. And to think that the cosmetics they're putting on their skin is part of the problem is, is kind of scary. Definitely. The podcast you are listening to was brought to you by wellnessplus.tv, a subscription service empowering you with everything you need to take control of your health and happiness. Sign up for your free trial today to watch the video version of this episode and all our podcast episodes. Plus, you'll gain access to our extensive library, including hundreds of follow-along yoga and fitness courses, massage therapy tutorials, weight loss information, guided meditations, educational health videos, and so much more. Feel better, look better, and live better today by visiting wellnessplus.tv. 
Well, I think the hard part for people is getting a realistic idea of like really how many things we're putting on our skin. Because mm. if you start listing them out, and it's like your soap, your shampoo, your conditioner, your lotion, That's it your for me. Oils, I'm your, done. Like, <laughs> you're yeah. still going. I'm yeah. like, I'm done. <laughs> um, you know, but like you said, for women, you know, it's, you know, then you've got like a deodorant, you've got some kind of perfume, you've got, uh, in terms of makeup, I mean, it can be all kinds of different things. Big, broad gamut in terms yeah. of how much makeup people wear, how often people are wearing it, you know. Um, but I think the the biggest thing, and you know, you'll hear this over and over. Oh well, it's such a minuscule amount. Oh no, not over it's a lifetime. Such a minuscule amount, and you have to just kind of you know think. Well, yes, but if you're exposing yourself to that every single day, and then especially with these things like lotions or soaps or whatever that you know are. Um, kind of like being put on our entire body, your mm-hmm. entire, like you said, absorbing system of our skin, um, that there's this, uh, you know, accumulative effect that really can't be seen, you yeah. know, um, like how much do we actually accumulate? Um, there's the uh, Environmental Working Group. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, that has deep. a really incredible um, database where they've broken down all of these different products and, you know, kind of their safety level and things like like that, but that's a great resource for kind of getting uh, an idea mm-hmm. <laughs> of how that accumulation builds up, and that it's not, you know, just the cosmetics. We could talk about, you know, what's in the paint, what's in the carpet, what's in the chemicals that mm-hmm. are being used to clean things. Or how I mean, much gluten is in those products? So we've got some celiac patients that are completely gluten free, and they can't get their antibodies down or symptoms controlled, and it's because they're putting gluten on in their shampoo or their mouthwash wow. or something. Well, mouthwash is a bad example, but in all kinds of creams and things, gluten's a great glue. It makes a makes a thickening agent. Mm-hmm. So yes, if you're a celiac, watch your products for gluten. Yeah, and I see more and more now things. Mm-hmm. That'll, you know, my shampoo actually says gluten free on it. Um, and it's kind of funny when I first saw that, I was like, well, that's kind of weird. And I was like, well, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all that they would be, right. you know, yeah, using that gluey mm-hmm. uh, molecule or whatever mm-hmm. in all these different places. Because from a manufacturing standpoint, you know, you've got these certain companies that are manufacturing chemicals and they're like, all right. Let's put this chemical in as many things as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. And when you start looking at, you know, the phthalates or the parabens or mm-hmm. whatever, I mean, if you really read the ingredients, which I stupidly, you know, I'll spend four hours. I haven't done this in a long time because now I know, I know, I know enough. I've read enough ingredient labels right. that I can do my shopping a little more quickly. But I would spend hours in the grocery store just like actually reading everything. Mm-hmm. And you start, especially when you start becoming aware of some of those like parabens or phthalates or whatever, and you start looking for them, you start seeing how many things that they are contained in, you can kind of get a picture of, you know, how the body accumulates them. And then can you speak a little bit to, um, I guess, the detoxification process of how the body handles those things? So, yes, I can a lot. Uh, Number one, you got to fix your gut. (laughs) If you don't have a gut intact, you can't detoxify. So that is number one. Everyone knows the liver is the the detox organ. So you can support the liver. The main ways I like to support the liver are, I would consider this kind of full liver support would be a B-complex vitamin with methylfolate. So when you look at the folic acid, it needs to say methylated folic acid or L5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. So the whole B-complex, not any one B vitamin by itself. Number two is the dim detox supplement from, I use pure encapsulations for a dim detox. That's kind of full methylation support. 
support, which is a um, detox cycle. And then the main ingredient that, or the main product that comes out of that methylation cycle is called glutathione. So I encourage anyone and everyone that's worried about toxins to take extra glutathione in order to battle that. Glutathione is kind of tough to find though because there's a lot of marketing around glutathione and not every glutathione product is created equal. There's a lot of fake products out there. Your stomach actually deactivates glutathione. So if you don't have a good liposomal product, then you're actually not going to get any or hardly anything out of your supplement. So instead of glutathione, if you're not sure about which one to get, it's an easier way to just go find NAC or N-acetylcysteine. N-acetylcysteine is affordable, it's easy to find, and you don't have to worry about the stomach disruption or really super high quality. You always want to make sure you get high quality brand supplements. But um, that's my full liver support. And then if you want to add more phase two upregulation, which we talked about, I think, in our last podcast, is um, milk thistle or silymerin to boost up that phase two detoxification pathway. Interesting. And so, so that helps you remove all toxins. It doesn't matter where, whether it's parabens, phthalates, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. It helps you remove everything. Yeah. You know, because I've seen a lot of people that will say something like, oh, well, why would I need to do a detox? Or why do I need to take something to support my liver? My liver does a fine job. Um, detoxifying the body. Is that, I mean, to me, I feel like our liver is overloaded. Absolutely. Um, So for somebody to be like, oh, my liver's doing just fine. It's like, well, you know, well, let's talk about how many toxins are we putting into the body that your liver's having to deal with. Um, So yeah, are you growing your own food and not allowing any toxins to blow in from anywhere else? Are you avoiding all chemicals and paints and cosmetics and toothpaste and everything? No, we're we're bombarded with toxins on a daily basis. And as I've told you before, now we can actually test for those kind of things. So mm-hmm. um, I was one that was guilty of ordering um, Paleo on the Go is one of my favorite places to order from and have food in the freezer if I ever don't meal prep or something, I can get Paleo on the Go. And I was working a lot of ER shifts and I was bad at heating that food in the plastic containers. And so I decided, oh, let me do my toxin panel so I can show everybody how clean my liver is. And wow, I had a bad test. So it was a pretty (laughs) big slap to the forehead. Like, okay, duh, I already knew I was eating too much plastic. So it was a real big um, um, slap in the face to say, time to get rid of the plastic container. So you can think you're perfectly detoxified. Come on in. I'd be happy to test you and show you that you're probably not. Yeah. Or maybe you are. And I'd say congrats. Man. I would be really interested to like see where I fall, but I'm sure that I, you know, I'm I'm sure that I, it, as much as I try to eat clean and try to do mm-hmm. all the things, um, I mean, I'm wearing makeup right now. Try yeah. to wear the natural makeup or whatever, but, um, you know, it's like, I think the, maybe the take home message is just that, you know, no matter how much we do, mm-hmm. there's so much unseen. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you were doing all the natural things, if you walk into a building, mm-hmm. I mean, there's formaldehyde in the carpet and mm-hmm. there's probably in the paint. And then who mm-hmm. even knows what other chemicals um, mm-hmm. you're surrounded with? Um, it's just such a, um, you know, kind of scary thing to think about. But at the same time, I try to always remind people that, like, you are empowered yeah. to know this. Yep. You're empowered to know that you want to try to avoid, you know, these certain chemicals. And unfortunately, most of the mainstream lotion, soaps, all of those things are just Have terrible in that regard. Um, but I feel 
empowered and I feel fortunate to know that, you know what, I'm going to spend a little bit of extra money to get the one that's more natural. Well, you can either spend it now and spend it ongoing or you can wait till you're sick. And if you think healthcare is cheap, look at autoimmunity and how much those drugs cost. Just Google top five most... most profitable drugs. And you will see that I think three out of the five right now are autoimmune drugs. So keep slathering those toxins on and not supporting your liver. And you'll ultimately develop an autoimmune condition or heart attack or stroke, which is actually an autoimmune condition also. We didn't talk about that. But, um, wow. and that's more opinion than able uh, that I'm able to prove. But um, yeah, healthcare is expensive. One heart attack is $100,000. So how much product could you buy for $100,000 <laughs> instead of having that heart attack and you still have your functioning heart? So yeah. you're you're going to pay for it one way or the other. Limit your exposure, support your liver. I've never had anyone come to my office and say, oh, I over detoxed. I'm so clean. Like said no one ever. <laughs> so if you did a detox and your body didn't need it, well then congratulations. But chances are you we've all accumulated stuff. We're rent-free storage for the chemical companies. Right. <laughs> rent-free storage for the chemical companies. I love that. Um, and then like you had said earlier that, you know, a lot of these different chemicals are fat soluble. Mm-hmm. So it's like they literally are you know, I don't know. Yeah, I think of like our fat cells are like little storage units. Absolutely. <laughs> like you said, little storage units for Absolutely. toxicity. So, um, and that's another, you know, point for people that when they start losing weight and they're trying to lose weight and talking about why it can be so hard to lose weight in the first place. Remembering that the whole reason your body stored that fat in the first place was to try and save your life. Mm-hmm. And now that fat is so loaded up with toxins mm-hmm. that the body is, is, I mean, I think in terms of holding on to fat, there's part of it is the hesitance to let all of these toxins Absolutely. out. And then the process of losing weight and burning that fat and letting those toxin, toxins enter the system can be really unpleasant. So mm-hmm. it's... Um, it's definitely something, like you said, that you don't want to just keep letting it get worse and worse and worse because the longer the problem is there building, the harder it's going to be. Absolutely. Whereas if you're still you know, pretty healthy and you can start making the switch to natural or organic or just mm-hmm. avoiding the chemicals in the first place, mm-hmm. um, that you're going to be so much better off and more pleasant <laughs> in general <laughs> yes. than getting into one of these like further disease states. Yep. You can learn more about Dr. Oob by visiting oobmedical.com. And if you would like to see the full video version of this podcast, as well as hundreds of other health and wellness videos, I hope you'll join us over on wellnessplus.tv. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. The Wellness Plus Podcast, copyright 2018, Target Public Media, LLC, all rights reserved.